Good morning, Moody Church, and thank you for affording me this amazing opportunity to bring the Word of God, the living God, before you today. I'd ask you to open your Bibles and please turn to Matthew 13. In just a moment, we're going to read a short passage, just verses 44 to 46. These three verses contain two very short parables of our Lord Jesus that the church has traditionally called the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the parable of the pearl of great value. Parable, of course, was a story that Jesus would tell, the details of which were taken from everyday life through which our Lord meant to teach one or a few basic spiritual principles. These two parables in particular are in a category we call kingdom parables. If you're in the passage, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you, that blue Bible in the rack, it will be, the passage will be on page 819 of that Bible. These two short parables are classified as kingdom parables. You'll notice they begin with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. In fact, the four parables that surround these two parables in Matthew chapter 13 begin the same way. So these are two kingdom parables in a sea of kingdom parables. So this morning, after we read our passage, the first thing we'll do is seek to answer the question, what exactly is the kingdom of heaven, which the Bible also often calls the kingdom of God. Then we'll turn our attention directly to these parables and seek to answer two other questions. Number one, why does Jesus say in these two parables that the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value, that is of infinite value? And second question, what does it look like in our lives to give up everything as Jesus teaches in these two parables? What does it look like, practically speaking, to give up everything to gain, to gain the value of the kingdom of heaven? With that introduction, let's read together the word of the Lord, Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Now, in these two parables, Jesus is not interested in the ethics of finding treasure. He's not interested in best practices among people who sell pearls. His interest is the kingdom of heaven. 
And so we begin by asking ourselves, what exactly is the kingdom of heaven, as we noted, also called frequently in the New Testament, the kingdom of God? Well, in everyday language, a king or queen's rule or reign, a king or queen's kingdom exists wherever that king or queen reigns. For example, the great sun king, Louis XIV, his kingdom was France because his rule extended to the borders of France as it existed in the 1600s and in the early 1700s. So, the kingdom of heaven exists wherever God's rule exists. In the broad sense, of course, God rules all things. So the whole universe in that sense is God's heaven. But Jesus has a narrower sense in mind in this passage. At this time in history, God rules particularly in the hearts of those who are his people by his grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom of heaven for now, until the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven for now is God's largely invisible rule in the hearts of his people. So let's move from the question of what is the kingdom of heaven to the two main questions that these parables raise. Number one, why does Jesus say in the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and in the parable of the pearl of great value that the kingdom is of inestimable value? That is, you can't set an amount on its value that the kingdom is of inestimable value is obvious from the parables. The man found the treasure. It was so valuable that he sold everything that he had so that he could buy the field in which he had buried the treasure. The pearl was of such immense value that the merchant of pearls sold everything that he had, everything that he had in order that he could gain possession of that one pearl. Since Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this, he means that the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value. You cannot set a value on it, which begs a very obvious question, Jesus. Why do you say in these two parables that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that is worth selling everything to gain, that the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl that's worth selling everything else that I have, giving up everything else that I have, that I may gain possession of it? Where, Jesus, does this value of the kingdom really lie? Answer? The value of the kingdom of heaven 
lies in the one who is the king of the kingdom of heaven. Think about it. When God gives someone by his grace his kingdom, when God draws a sinner into his kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, what is the greatest possible gift that God could give as he gives his kingdom? The greatest possible gift that God can give is God. Here's the point of the parable. The treasure is God. The pearl is God. God is the value of the kingdom. Now, Tim Stafford, when he plans the music for Sunday morning, does not do so haphazardly, but rather with thought and with prayer. And we've just sung a wonderful hymn, the, hymn, the refrain of which, I'll remind you, goes this way. I will trust in my Redeemer. What are the next two words? Greatest treasure. Wellspring of my soul, uppermost in the affections of my soul. God is the treasure. God is the pearl of great value. The fourth century church leader Gregory of Nyssa put it this way in a sermon, God is the one who distributes the inheritance. He himself is the inheritance. He is the one who makes spiritual riches and is himself the riches. He shows you the treasure and is himself the treasure. God is the treasure. God is the pearl of great value. Put another way, the reason the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value is because the God who rules the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value. Now here's the point at which I really pleaded with the Lord as I prepared. I said, Lord, would you help us to hear this reality that you are treasure? Would you help us to hear it as more than just words? But it, would it be the true experience of our souls? How do we come to experience God as the treasure, as the pearl that he truly is. I think that we most fully enter into that experience, at least in this world, when we, in biblical terms, magnify the Lord. To magnify the Lord is simply to see God 
as he is revealed in Scripture in all of his spiritual beauty and to enjoy him. To see God and to enjoy him and to praise him. That is to magnify God. Now the Christian pastor and writer, John Piper, has warned that there are two ways to magnify something in the world. We can magnify something, he notes, with the microscope. When we magnify something with the microscope, we take something that is really small and we make it look much bigger than it actually is. That's not what magnifying the Lord is about. The other way to magnify something is with a telescope. With a telescope, we take something that is enormous, like Jupiter, and begin to make it look like what it actually is. When we magnify the Lord by seeing him and enjoying him, and praising him, we begin to show that he is something of the size that he actually is. And the telescope that we use to magnify the Lord is the Word of God. So let's do that together, just for the next few minutes, from one little passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 40. I want to magnify the Lord with you by showing from Isaiah 40 four characteristics of the Lord's greatness. Again, what we're doing is magnifying the Lord together, seeing Him from Scripture, enjoying Him as He's presented in Scripture, responding with the praise that He is due. Characteristic number one of the greatness of God, his omniscient wisdom. Isaiah 40, 13 to 14. Who has measured or given direction to the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and who made him understand? All those are rhetorical questions that assume the answer, what? No one. No one has ever counseled God. No one has ever taught God something that God did not already know forever. God is eternally unperplexed. Does anybody here else besides me play Wordle every morning? The little online word game? Addicted to it. God is never perplexed at Wordle. God always gets the answer in one try. Because from all eternity, God has always known the answer to what the wordle question would be, the wordle game would be for today. And God's knowledge is an omniscient 
knowledge. His wisdom is an omniscient wisdom. God's omniscience means that God knows all things past, present, and future, both actual and possible in a single act of knowing. And God's wisdom and God's knowledge are never in conflict, but always work in perfect harmony. Listen to Paul in Romans eleven thirty three. 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Characteristic number two, as we magnify God, characteristic number two of his greatness, Isaiah 40, Verses 15 to 17, the greatness of his insurpassable immensity. God's immensity means he cannot be contained by the universe that he created. Behold, Isaiah says, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. There are at this point in history 193 nation states in the world. And Isaiah is saying that if we could take a cosmic pair of scales and put on one side all 193 of those nation states and all of their armies and all of their economies and we were to put God on the other scale. The nations would be as a speck of dust in comparison to the greatness and the immensity of God. Third, as we magnify God, the greatness of his unrivaled sovereignty. Isaiah 40, 21 to 24. Do you not know? Do you not hear? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. All the Russias of this world, all the Chinas of this world, all the Americas of this world, all the Ghanas of this world, all the Perus of this world, all the 193 nation states of this world rose when God said rise and they will fall when God says fall. On Tuesday, we will, I trust with gratitude to God, celebrate the 247th birthday of this republic. By God's grace, the longest lived republic in the history of the world at this point in the world's history.
but America will have only as many birthdays as the sovereign God determines she will have. Psalm 115.3 puts it unbelievably clearly. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. I pray that it will please God to bring repentance and revival to the United States of America. I try to pray that every day. That's my heart's desire. But if we don't receive the grace of God to repent and to return to him, first is the church. How many more birthdays we will have, only the sovereign God knows. And only the sovereign God will determine. Fourth, as we magnify the greatness of God, we see his unchallengeable omnipotence. Isaiah 40, verses 25 to 26. To what will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes to the stars on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Astronomers estimate that there are about 200 billion galaxies in the universe, each of which contains about 200 billion stars. If my math is still good, that is four times 10 to the 23rd power stars in the universe. Let's put that in some perspective. If you could count 50 stars per second, nobody can do that, but if you could, if you could count 50 stars per second, it would take you 250 years to count the stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. And you would have 199 billion plus galaxies to go. So get started. <laughs> God created every single one of those stars simply by speaking it into existence. And Isaiah 40 says he knows every one by name. I forget names like crazy. And God knows the names of 200 billion times 200 billion stars. What we're doing from Isaiah 40 is magnifying him. We're taking the telescope of Isaiah 40 and making God look something like the great and glorious God that he is. But you know what's true? If God were only great, but he were not also perfectly good, he could become a moral monster. 
But the reality is, as Psalm 119, verse 68 puts it, the Lord is perfectly good. And consequently, everything that the Lord does is perfectly good. If you're ever in a time of suffering, of challenge, of discouragement, depression even, and you're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, where do you take your mind back? Take it back to a lonely hill 2,000 years ago, a place called Calvary, and stand beneath the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and say the words that we sung just a few minutes ago, two wonders here at the foot of the cross. Two wonders here that I confess. My worth and my unworthiness my worth that the eternal Son of God would leave the glory of heaven and enter into this mess that we have created by our sin and walk through this world utterly sinless, obedient to the will of his heavenly Father every moment of his life. And though being the only human who ever lived who did not deserve death, this God-man, fully God and fully man, died in that humanity on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of sinners, satisfying as he died there the just wrath the just wrath, the righteous, the holy wrath of the Father against the sins of sinners. Look at him dying there and say to yourself, two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness, my worth that the very Son of God would take my sins upon himself and satisfy the just wrath of God against my sins, that is my worth so much so that God calls me his segula, his treasured possession. And yet, God, I recognize that I have been a rebellious sinner against you. And I am altogether unworthy of the redeeming work of the Son of God for me. How can it be, God? The answer is the goodness of God in the form of the love of Jesus Christ at the cross for the glory of the Father but the love of Jesus Christ for all of his people that drove him to that place 
into that horrible experience of the wrath of the Father for our sakes. John Stott, the British pastor and author, puts it this way at the end of his book, The Cross of Christ. I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, he writes, and stood respectfully before the statue of the Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. That's the answer to our first question. Why does Jesus say the kingdom of heaven is of inestimable value? Because the king of the king of, he of heaven is of inestimable value. He is infinite in his greatness. He is infinite in his goodness. Much more quickly now. Our second question, what does it mean, what does Jesus mean in these parables by giving up everything to gain the kingdom? Well, in a sense, of course, we have to be careful with the parables because the man who found the treasure bought it. The merchant who found the pearl bought it. You cannot buy the kingdom of heaven. Isaiah 55.1 makes it clear. You come into the kingdom of heaven without money and without price. In that sense, the kingdom of heaven costs us nothing. There's nothing we add to the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross in redemption. All we do is receive God's grace to receive what Christ has done on our behalf. So then what does Jesus mean when he says you should be willing to give up everything in order to gain the kingdom? I think Jesus has two thoughts in mind. Number one, in order to enter into the kingdom, very obviously you have to give up any effort to save yourself. You simply receive what Jesus Christ has already done for you. But then second, I think to, it, to give up everything in order to enter the kingdom means something of what Martin Luther wrote in that last stanza of the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. His truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let goods and kindreds go. Let the rule of your life go. Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. What does take up a cross mean? 
It means acknowledging that Jesus Christ is now Lord of my life. I love something that atheist Thomas Nagel once wrote. He said in a moment of incredibly refreshing honestly, I think we atheists have what I call a cosmic authority problem. Well, Thomas Nagel is not just atheists. We're all born with a cosmic authority problem. We want to run our lives. Thank you very much. But to gain the kingdom, you get kicked off the throne. And God takes his rightful seat. And you find, for the first time in your life, that life begins to make sense. And God begins to bring order out of disorder. That's what God loves to do. He loves to bring order out of disorder. So as we close, what is our response to these two parables of the Lord Jesus? A parable of Jesus is like somebody jabbing you in the ribs. Jesus intended for the people who heard these parables to respond to them. Well, the response, if you're here today and you're apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, is receive the grace of God to enter the kingdom. How do you enter the kingdom? Simply receive the grace of God to trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you from sin, to give you eternal life, to be the new Lord of your life, kicking you off the throne. And today, Today, by God's grace, you can enter into the glory, into the joy, into the fulfillment, into the satisfaction of being a citizen of the kingdom of God and relating to God. You see, God is the gospel. God is what the kingdom is all about. God's what, what, is what heaven is all about. Ezekiel 48, 35, what's the name of heaven? The name of heaven is the Lord is there. Why is that the name of heaven? Because the big deal about heaven is the Lord is there. He is the gospel. He's the treasure. He's the pearl. But if by God's grace you are today trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, then here's how I think Jesus wants to us to respond to the parable by God's grace. Magnify the Lord. See the Lord as he's revealed in Scripture. Enjoy the Lord as he's revealed in Scripture. Respond with praise to the Lord because of who he is revealed to be in Scripture. In other words, do what C.S. Lewis commended to us in the last of his little children's novels in the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle, when he urges the children further up and further in. Christian, when it comes to God, further up and further in. By the word of God, further up and further in. Magnify the Lord. See the Lord. Enjoy the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good and respond with praise.
as God reveals himself to your soul. And pray that God would keep you in the place of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.8, where he wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Jesus Christ. God in Jesus Christ is the treasure. God in Jesus Christ is the pearl. May we know it in the depths of our souls. For the glory of God, amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, King of the kingdom, immense, beautiful, glorious, would you enable us, God, to live with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, where we would count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing God in Jesus Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.